with such a privilege to have with us this morning and over Shavuot. Rabbi Kellerman is a very popular lecturer in Jerusalem where he literally has thousands of students and his books on the authenticity of the Torah and more recently his book to Kinder Soul are exceptionally popular. But it's Rabbi Kellerman's genuine personality, his care and his integrity, which I think are his strongest powers. And it gives me great pleasure to ask him to address you guys this morning. Just before I call on Rabbi Kellerman, the tape is being recorded and will be available tomorrow as well. If you look on 613.org, Johnny? 613.org You can also pick it off the net Tomorrow It will be available after the week After Shavuot It will be available as well as Rabbi Tatsis talk last night So it gives me great pleasure to call on Rabbi Leib Kellerman Good morning. It is uh, it's thrilling to speak to you this morning about Tekin Soul. Maybe some background about the book before I explain how the system of Tekin Soul works. Tekin Soul is the book about about planting and building, uh, a very traditional Jewish approach to to raising kids. When the the book was first being assembled. What we did was we compared traditional Jewish parenting practices to the modern research to see what worked and what didn't work. How close was traditional Jewish parenting to the, the theoretical ideal according to the latest studies. And what we found was there was not some sort of a vague correlation between traditional Jewish parenting practices and what the statistics say actually works. In fact, there was a perfect match, which was very exciting. We got in touch with research organizations all over the world, and the papers were, were being shipped to me literally on a weekly basis, thick stacks of studies, and we would keep comparing the studies to what the Torah says we should be doing with our kids. Finally, the book was assembled, it was ready to go, and uh, we were scheduled to do a, a, a tour all across North America with the book. It was extremely exciting. I was supposed to be on over 100 radio and television shows, and uh, it came the night before I was supposed to leave. My bags were packed. And I, I went to my room and I took a copy of the, the newly published book, stuck that into my valise, and then I took the, the stack of the latest literature that had just come in from these research organizations and I stuck that in my valise as well. And I, as I was putting that in my valise, my wife said, what are you doing? So I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish the research on the plane. My wife said, but the book's already published. So I said, I know, but I'm addicted. I can't stop because it's so exciting to see confirmed over and over and over again how right the Torah is. So next morning, early in the morning, went off to the airport, got on the plane. As soon as the plane took off, I opened up my valise and took out the stack of research and I started marking up the papers. So there was a fellow who was sitting next to me on the plane. He was sitting by the window. And this fellow was sitting next to me 
he, uh, the first hour of the flight, he's just looking over my shoulder at all of the work that I'm doing. He's reading all of my notes. So I didn't say anything. After an hour, I look up. And the fellow's intensely reading everything that I'm writing. And, and he says to me, he says, you, uh, you work with kids? So I said, yeah, I just wrote a new book. New book. Do you want to see it? <laughs> so he takes a look at the book and he says, you wrote a book about working with kids? You have any kids? So I said, yeah, I got five. Want to see pictures? <laughs> so at this point, the fellow was talking, but I don't know if he was talking to me. He says, you have five kids? And he turned towards the window and he said, God, I'd do anything to have five kids. So I looked at him and I said, Sir, you don't have any children? He says to me, No, I've got eight. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> let's call a spade a spade. Yes, <laughs> what we're talking about is the the greatest challenge that probably any of us will ever face in our lives. It's an extremely difficult task. Sometimes pushes us to wit's end, and it's comforting to know that there is a system that our heritage gives us that actually works. Okay, now I'm going to cut straight to the chase, like this. The, to kindle a soul system, the traditional Jewish approach to parenting has three components. That's the beauty of the system. It's very simple. Once you master these three components, then on your own, you can come up with a prescription for any parenting challenge you ever face. I remember when I was first raising my kids years ago, so... I became very excited about uh, a number of these parenting series. I remember there was a book out by Penelope Leach. She was one of the, the parenting experts that I remember had tremendous respect for. She has a book called From Birth to Age Three, which is about that thick. Yeah, and then she has a book, Age Three to Seven, which is like that thick. And then she has Age Seven to uh, uh, Age Seven to Twelve, which is also about that thick. And then she has age 12 to 14, which is about that thick. Yeah? And uh, if you want to, to, to know what to do with your kids, you need thousands and thousands of pages. And this is the way that most of the secular literature on, on child raising works is they give you a specific scenario and then a specific prescription for that scenario. And it's just an immense amount of material that you'd have to master. Plus, invariably, none of the kids in the books were exactly what my kid did. My kid was always weird, yeah? And he did something that was not in the book. So it's very frustrating. Once you have the traditional Jewish parenting system down, the Tekindle Soul system, so you master three principles, and in three principles you could write your own book. Any kind of scenario that comes up, you just plug values into those variables, and you'll come up with your own prescription. That's what's so exciting about the system. Okay. The three components are something called planting, something called building, and something called prayer. And I'll describe exactly what planting is, what building is, what prayer is, and then we'll actually see some applications. If we have time this morning, we'll squeeze in some applications. You'll see how exciting the system is, what kind of magic you can do with the system. Okay, first, planting. These traditional Jewish sages believe that organic processes exist throughout the universe. And whatever is true about plants and agriculture, 
That's also true about human beings, that in some way a human being is exactly like a plant. There's actually a verse, Ha'adam Eitasad, the person is like a tree in the field. And therefore, the more that you know about how trees and plants and flowers work, the more you'll understand how a human being works. So how does planting work? What you do is you dig a hole, you drop a seed in. Oh, and then you wait. Because the nature of planting is, it's a very slow process. Maybe in a week, you'll see a little sprout of green poking its head up through the ground. It could be that it'll be a month before you'll see any significant growth, before it'll actually look like a plant. And it might be two or three or four years before there's anything resembling a tree. It might be five or ten years before there's actually fruit. The nature of planting is that it's very, very slow. That's one disadvantage of the planting process is it's a very slow process. There are advantages, though. If I plant an apple tree, and I leave that apple tree, and I come back to that apple tree, let's say 150 years later, so what I might find is an entire apple orchard because that apple tree will drop apples which have seeds and those will scatter and they'll plant other apple trees and the growth process will continue spontaneously. The disadvantage of organic processes, the disadvantage of planting is it goes slow. The advantage is it continues spontaneously on its own. Planting is slow, but it continues spontaneously. What does planting look like in a real life human being? Okay, here comes the formal definition. The definition of planting is when I drip into a child or my spouse or a co-worker or any human being that I'm involved with, when I drip into them over and over again, values and perspectives. A value is this is more important than that. Uh, Peace is more important than truth. That's a value. Perspectives are ways of looking out at the world and seeing more than just the physical facts, actually seeing the world through an ethical or a moral context. In Israel, everyone gets around using public transportation. So a common scene, you'll be standing by a bus and there'll be a whole group of people waiting for the bus to come and you'll notice a woman who's walking up towards the bus pushing a stroller and she gets within about 15 feet of the bus stop and she stops. And she's standing there with her stroller about 15 feet from the, from the bus stop. So someone who only sees physical facts, someone who lacks perspective, will just see a bus stop 15 feet and a woman with a stroller. Someone who has perspective will be able to put on the glasses of ethics, the glasses of morality, and actually see an opportunity for kindness. What's going on? Why is she standing 15 feet away? Because this woman is going to try to lift her stroller up through the back door of the bus. You can't come on the front of the bus with a stroller in Israel. It always goes up through the back door. But she can't lift that stroller alone. And so seeing what's really happening, there's really an opportunity for kindness here, I then stroll over to where she's standing so I can help her up with her stroller onto the back of the bus. That's called perspective. I see things in the world through a moral context. Planting is when I drip into a child or myself or somebody else and when I drip into anybody values and perspectives. What things are important in life, what things aren't important and how to view the world. Okay, let's actually see planting live. Here we go. Okay. Um, During the vacation periods, so I invariably take my kids traveling around Israel. I want them to see the entire country. We live in Jerusalem, but I want them to see the whole country. And so we take them to the north, we take them to the south. A few years ago, when my kids were all small, we decided, uh, it was during Sukkot vacation, we decided we would take the kids down to, I'm sorry, up to uh, Netanya 
for a day at the beach. Natanya has these gorgeous beaches, and there, we, there's this one place where it's invariably empty. My whole family can go. We can go swimming there. It's really wonderful. So my wife said, tomorrow let's go to the beach. I said, great. I love the beach. I was very excited. I came home from Minyan early in the morning, and as soon as I walked to the house, I said to Hannah, my wife, I said, let's go. So my wife was a very experienced parent, says, not so quick. And she took every child, walked into the restroom, made sure every child used the restroom. When the last child had used the restroom, my wife said, quick, go now! Yeah. So we ran out, and we caught the, the number 15 bus leaving Harnoff, and we took it over to the central bus station. And I went to buy the tickets to Netanya. And my wife, being an, extra, extra, an expert parent, then took all the kids back to the restroom once more. She was squeezing them, shaking them, yes. No problems on the bus, fine. Okay, I get up to the front of the, the line to buy the bus tickets. When I get to the front of the line... There is a, um, a, a woman there behind the glass, and she says, Natanya, did you want the express tickets or the normal tickets? So what's the difference? The normal trip to Natanya is about two hours, because they stop in every little town along the way. The express bus is 45 minutes straight shot. You're there instantly. So, okay, I'm not that experienced as a parent, but I know you don't take little children on a two-hour bus ride. It's too long for them. So I bought the 45-minute express tickets nonstop. Great. Got the tickets, ran out. Just as I was running out of line, I saw Hannah coming with the kids. We met up. We saw the Tanya bus. We started running towards the Tanya bus. Just as we started running towards the bus, the bus started pulling out. So we were waving at the bus. And in Israel, they do this. He was waving back at us as he was pulling out. Yeah. Yeah, it's very nice. We approached him as he's going across the parking lot and he opened the door but kept moving, yes. Yeah, we're putting our kids up one at a time as the bus is going. Okay, finally we get every kid up onto the bus. My wife hops up, I hop up, the bus is moving around. One of my kids sits down over there, one over there. I sit over here next to my middle child, Hillel Yeshayahu. Just a word about, uh, about my kids' names. My family hails from Lita, from Lithuania, which I think most of the South African community also hails from. And... In Lita, there was today a not well-known custom that when you gave your child a name, you thought carefully before you named the child, but then once you named the child, you called the child by that name. So no nicknames. So my wife and I spoke, and we decided that we wanted to try to keep this custom, and therefore before each one of our children was born, we thought very carefully, came up with a name, and then from the time the child was born, we called the child by that name. No nicknames for at least... 15 minutes after the child was born. Okay. Hillel Yishayahu is not the best name to name a child if you always plan on calling the child by that name. So what happened was uh, a few days after he was named, my wife looked at this cute little baby and she said, he's such a kadosh, he's such a little holy one. Okay, and that was it for Hillel Yishayahu, yeah? Um, and from then on, whenever she wanted to call him a name of endearment, she called him my kadosh, my holy one. Come here, little kadosh. I'm sitting next to kadosh, Hillel Yishayahu on the bus, and the bus takes off. Fifteen minutes into the bus ride, Hill turns to me. Abba. Yeah, Hill, what's up? I have to go to the bathroom. I said, Hill, that's impossible. You went when you were at home. You went to get to the central bus station. You don't have to go now. Didn't have to go then. I have to go now. So I said, Hill, don't worry. We'll be there in 45 minutes. It'll be fine. Okay. Fifteen minutes later. Hill, what's up? Gotta go now! So I started to tell him it's all going to be okay, but even I didn't believe it at that point. And I got up and I walked up to the bus driver and I started to explain to the bus driver, you know, this happens in Israel all the time. A lot of people there have kids. It's very common. I said to him, you know, listen, my son, we just need to pull over for a moment. It'll one second on the side of the road. We'll be right back going again. Bus driver says to me, express bus doesn't stop. 
So I realized he just didn't. Ex- I, my Hebrew must not be clear. I tried to explain to him in four other languages, yeah, uh, but he was not persuaded. And uh, after about five minutes of talking to him, I realized we had a very serious problem. By the time that I got back to Hillel, he was making noises. My wife had moved up. She was sitting next to him. The entire bus was at this point involved in the saga. People were screaming, Hillel, hold on, hold on. Yeah. I sat down next to Hillel. I said, five more minutes. Now five more minutes. And this is the way we made it all the way to Netanya. Okay, I explained to him, don't worry. When we come up the hill to Netanya, the bus immediately turns left, goes into the central bus station. When we come in there, there's a restroom. You'll be fine. We're coming up the hill into Netanya. Hillel's holding on for dear life. The bus turns left, we go into Netanya, the bus stops at the central bus station. My kids, who were panicked looking at poor Hillel, jumped up, blocked the aisles, yeah? My wife and I grabbed poor Hillel by the arms, walking down off the bus. He comes down off the bus, and we immediately walked him over to the restroom where there was a massive wooden sign that said, Under Construction. That's what Hillel said. Uh, my kids were panicked. I said to them, quick, we're going to go out onto the boardwalk. There'll be a shop there. One of the shops will have a restroom. My kids caught the hint. They ran in front of us. They ran out onto the, onto the boardwalk. They were running in a shop, out of a shop, in a shop, out of a shop. Not a good sign. Yeah? In a shop, out of a shop, around the corner, they disappeared. My wife and I are carrying poor Hillel down the, the street. We get him down to the end of the street. My kids come running back around the corner, led by my oldest son, who's screaming, we found a restroom! So I yelled him, great, where is it? So he ran up to us with the other kids, and he says, it's in a bar! At which point, Hill looks up at me and says, what's a bar? So my oldest son looks down at him and says, it's a place where people listen to loud music and get drunk. So Hill looks up at me and he says, I can't go in a bar. At which point I responded, why not? And Hill looked up at me and he said, I can't go in a bar because I'm Kadosh. We never taught our children not to go into bars. It didn't come up. (laughs) However, we didn't really need to because inadvertently we had no idea what we were doing. We had planted a seed in this child. We had called this child Kadosh over and over and over again. And at some point, because he's an Israeli and he speaks fluent Hebrew, he realized what Kadosh meant. A holy one. And this little seed of self-image had taken root and sprouted and had taken over the child's entire personality. The nature of planting is when you give a child values and perspectives, it takes time for those seeds to take root. But eventually, everything you plant will take root and put forth fruit. What does building look like? Building is very different. Uh, let's see if I can just do a demonstration. Imagine in front of you now a massive, a massive wall. Imagine, have you ever seen the, the, the bricks in the Kotel in Jerusalem? They're like these massive... So imagine huge, massive bricks with grass growing out of them. Oh, this is a beautiful wall. Actually, here at Orson Mantle, they did a beautiful job constructing this for me. They just, Camp. I, I told them I wanted to complete. They left a hole right in the middle of the wall. Uh, that brick is. Oh, somebody right over here. They just didn't finish. Uh, excuse me. I'll, I'll be with you. Just one. I just want to finish this one brick. I just. I can't. I can't do the demonstration without a full wall. Just excuse me one second. I'm sorry.
That's much better, yeah? Okay, now, how long did that building take? About 30 seconds. The nature of building is, it's very fast. Unlike planting, the organic processes, when you're dealing with inorganic processes, the repair happens almost instantly. That's the nature of building. That's an advantage of building over planting. But there's a disadvantage in building, just like there's a disadvantage in planting. The disadvantage in planting was it was slow, but planting had an advantage that is it continued spontaneously. But no one believes that brick, if I leave it for 150 years, will, will sprout like another couple of rooms, maybe like a pool. It's not going to happen. That's the end of the entire process. The nature of building is it's terminal. Once you put the brick in, it's finished. What is the definition of building in a human being? So when you build in a human being, that is inserting behaviors and habits into myself, into a child, a co-worker, etc. Live, what does building look like? Let's take a look. Uh, we use an example. I counseled a child in Israel a few years ago. His name is Danny. The parents first asked if they could have a meeting. I met with them. Uh, they described a child who, extremely bright, they said. The parents themselves happened to be very, very bright people, very good people, very sensitive people. They described a child as very bright, extremely successful in school up until fourth grade. Starting in fourth grade, things started to fall apart a little bit. They noticed that he was getting into trouble for not doing homework. Now, he'd really never done homework up until then, but there was not a lot of homework assigned until the beginning of fifth grade. That's when there was a lot. And at that point, he started to fall apart. They also noticed that the child never got fully dressed. His shirt was always hanging out of his pants. Often his belt was unbuckled. His shoes were not tied. They also noticed that the kid never went to sleep on time. Bedtime was just a nightmare. The parents gave up. They just couldn't get him into bed on time. He never got up on time. And the parents told me that it had been months since the last time that he actually made it to the school bus on time. Now, every morning they woke him up, they tried to get him dressed in time, they tried to get him out to the school bus, but the parents told me invariably every morning they had to drive him to school because he missed the bus. It was a child who was just completely unstructured, totally out of control. So I asked if I could meet Danny, and they said, sure. We were sitting in their kitchen, they took me to the living room, they called Danny, Danny came in, sweet boy, I mean really good little boy. And so I asked, I asked the parents if I could talk to him alone, and they, the parents went back in the kitchen. And so I started to talk to him, and I asked him if he wanted to play a game. We started to play around a little bit. And uh, we were kibitzing for a while, just sort of having fun. And then I decided to start asking some questions. So I said, Danny, tell me something. What time, I usually go for the jugular, which is uh, bedtime. What time are you supposed to go to sleep at night? So Danny looked at me. He was very relaxed, and he said... I don't know. So I thought that was such an interesting answer, as if he had never confronted the question before. I said, Danny, tell me something. What time do you have to get up in the morning in order to make it to the bus on time? I don't know. So I said, Danny, tell me something. When are you supposed to brush your teeth? 
I don't know. At that point, I realized Danny was not the problem. Says Danny, I'll play with you later. Went back in the kitchen, sat down. Sat with the parents. I said, well, what do you think? So I said, do you mind if I ask a few questions? No, go ahead. I said, let me take a wild guess. Is there any chance that one of you might have had a parent who was like a drill sergeant in the army? And everything had to be just so. And if it wasn't that way, there was hell to pay. And he looked at her, and she looked down and was smiling. And I continued. And speaking to her, I said, And you swore that you would never do this to your child. That you would not make your child suffer the way that your father made you suffer. And her eyes welled up. She started crying. And she looked up at me and she said, and I was right, wasn't I? Okay, the end of the story here is that she had experienced very harsh building as a child. Building that was done improperly. And she decided she would never expose her children to that. And she felt if they would have just planted, if they would have just taught her proper values and perspectives, she would have grown into the right sort of person without all that suffering. And although her husband wanted to build, he wanted to set behavioral guidelines and limits. But she wouldn't let, allow him to. And that result was a child who they taught beautiful values to. And they encouraged tremendously. And they, and they gave him great perspectives on the world. But they never taught the child any structure, any rules. There was no framework in his life. And therefore they ended up with someone like Danny, who was completely disorganized. I was once talking to a sage in Jerusalem, and I asked him, what's more important, planting or building? So he said to me, you can tell from a grapevine. So I said, I understand, what is it you can tell from a grapevine? He says, a Jew is like a grapevine. You can tell from a grapevine. So when I was doing the research for the book, I did very serious research. This sort of a hint I followed up carefully. I went down to the pharmacy, I bought a, uh, the nursery, I bought a grapevine. <laughs> Brought him home, we called him Harold, put him on the porch. Yeah. Harold sprouted. We live on the third floor. He went up. He went out over our third floor balcony. Realized that there was no trellis there. Came back and started heading towards the bars that we had put up around our, our porch so that our children would not commit suicide. Yes. Harold hit one of the bars, sprouted a little uh, a green sprout, wrapped it around one of the bars, turned and then started heading in and out of the bars all the way across to the end of my porch. When he got to the end of the porch, he headed off again over the third floor, realized there was nothing there, turned around, came back, went all the way through the bars over again and did this back and forth and back and forth until he had filled all the bars on my porch with Harold. Four years later, I sat down on the first night of Sukkot and I made Kiddush on Harold. It was an extraordinary experience. Now, Someone who has had experience before with climbing plants, you could tell me, what would have happened to Harold if there would have been no bars, if there was no trellis, if there was nothing to hold Harold up, what would have happened? He would have died. Exactly. He wouldn't have made it. Why? Because although the fruit always comes from the organic process, but without the rules, the structure, something to hold the child in place, the child won't survive long enough to put forth that fruit. It's interesting. If you, if you check in Jewish sources, you'll find every place that the, the perfection of the world is spoken about, the messianic era, it's always spoken about in organic language. 
because the fruit comes from the organic process. Matzmiach Karen Yeshua, God causes salvation to sprout. Mashiach, the Messiah, has a nickname. Whatever his real name is, in the prophets it says that his nickname will be Semach, which means sprout. How are you doing, sprout? That's his name, sprout, because the fruit always comes from the organic process. But without the inorganic structure, child will never make it. We set up a program for Danny. Now, this is a no-brainer. You don't have to have a PhD to figure out how to do something like this. We got one of those not-too-fancy star charts. And I said to them, we should start with bedtime. So, they said to Danny, anytime he gets into bed on time, he gets a little star on the chart. I recommended there should also be a reward, money. They should give him a little bit of money if he gets into bed on time. And they should also give him a small fine if he doesn't get into bed on time. He had a little bit of money that he had received as gifts before for different chores he had done and just as presents from people and he had a jar full of these coins so in case he wouldn't get into bed the first night he would have some way of paying so the parents were expert planters they they sat with Danny and they explained to him this is how many hours of sleep some boy your age needs and they showed him you have to get up at this time in order to get to school on time so therefore this is when you have to go to sleep and they really like gave him the whole perspective they re- enabled him to see why his bedtime had to be X but they told him, this is your bedtime. And if you get into bed on time, you get a star and a little bit of money. And explain the fine as well. Parents called me after a week. They say, we're not sure it's working. I said, why is that? They said, he hasn't gotten into bed once on time. I said, so what's going on? They said, well, every night when he gets into bed late, he pays out the fine. So I said, okay, fine, just keep going. Eventually, this will work. They called me a couple of weeks later. Danny's very bright. He had paid out the fines every single night for a couple of weeks. At one point, he just turned to his parents and said, can I just give you all my money and just like forget the whole thing? So they said, no, you have to keep going. And they, they were the great planters. They encouraged him. We believe in you. You can do this, right? You can, you can master the bedtime. And they kept showing him why it's so important. He'll be well rested. And right, explaining to him. Okay. They told me that several months went by and Nebuch, the poor kid, was paying out all of his money and his jar was going down. He hardly had any money left. They told me that they got to the point where there was only enough money left to pay one last fine. And the kid was panicked. And he said to his parents, please help me. And like, just the symbolism of having lost all of his money was too much for him. And he said, like, please help me. I've got to get into bed on time tonight. He said, we're going to help you. And they told him, you know, quickly finish your dinner. All right, now let's brush your teeth. Let's get into pajamas. And they were really trying to get him you know, to move quickly, but he just wasn't moving so quickly. And the parents were watching. And it was getting very close. And they said, pajamas. And the kid realized he's about to lose less money. He was like pulling on his pajamas. He had one leg on, one leg off. He was running down the hall. Yeah, they described to me the scene as the boy, right, half-dressed, went barreling down the hall, banged into the door, sailed across the room, hit the bed. And they heard as he hit the bed, he had a little clock next to his bed, they heard as he hit the bed, he must have looked at the clock and realized that he was a couple of minutes late. And he just lost all of his money. And they heard from the back room a cry. He screamed out, I can't afford this! (laughs) But the parents said to him, don't worry. They said, you know, you can go into debt if you need be up to $1 million. Yeah, more than that is too much. But they said, you know, we will keep helping you until you finally... And they, the kid actually eventually made it. And they called me and they said, I think, you know, he, he just went to bed on time. And I said, hang on. And he was going to go... And another couple of nights later, he got into bed on time again. And a couple of weeks later, there was three times. And eventually, he was actually going to bed on time. As soon as bedtime was in place, I said, quick, personal hygiene. Yeah. And then we went for toothbrushing. And then eventually, we got him into a bath after, you know, four years and 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 you know piece by piece they actually built this child okay now this is many years ago danny 
lives in my neighborhood. He lives in Harnov. So I see him now. He's a big kid. Uh, uh, like he's, he's virtually an adult today. Okay? He's been, for whatever the last uh, six years, he's been a straight-A student. When you see the kid, he's dressed to kill. I mean, everything is just so sharp, so beautiful. Hair is always combed. Right? The kid is totally well put together. And he's the same happy, spontaneous, loving kid he always was. It's just now there's some structure in his life as well. We have to plant children. We have to build them. We have to plant ourselves and build ourselves as well. There's one third component, and that's prayer. And the, the third component works like this. I was bothered. I, I looked in the traditional Jewish prayer. Sometimes called Shemona Esver, the silent devotion, a 19 blessing prayer. These Orthodox Jews believe that in those 19 blessings is a mention of everything that is most dear to a Jew. If you never had to invent a prayer ever in your life, you would find everything you need in those 19 blessings. So I looked at the 19 blessings and I discovered, because I'm involved in, in, in counseling kids, so I looked at the 19 blessings and I discovered that there's one thing that is not mentioned anywhere in the 19 blessings. That is, there's no prayer for your children. Now this is so ironic because if you go up to any Jew... And you say that to you, excuse me, could you please translate for, for me the words Yiddish Anachas? Yiddish Anachas, you know, like, what, what is Jewish pride and joy? So that always refers to your kids. And yet the thing that we hold most dear in the whole world, it's not mentioned anywhere in the 19 blessings that are supposed to cover everything. So I asked the sage in Jerusalem, why is this? Why is there nothing there about, about, about kids? So he said to me, there's two reasons. One is, that what this child needs is not anything like what that child needs, which is nothing like what that child needs. There can't be a template. And more, what this child needs right now is nothing like what that child, that same child will need in 15 minutes. So there could never be some sort of an organized formal template for prayer for children. More, he said, you can't wait for formal prayer to talk to God about your kids because the needs happen too fast and they're too serious. How do you pray for your kids? Jewish prayer for children, this is the third component, is you speak out loud to God about whatever your kids need, whenever they need it. People who pray for their children are talking to God all the time about their kids. That's what traditional Jewish prayer for children looks like. The sage in Jerusalem, who was explaining to me how the system worked, he told me that if he achieved anything in his life, and he, can, he was considered, he passed away recently, but if he, can, he said he achieved anything in his life, by the way, when he passed away, there was uh, 35,000 people standing at his funeral. So he probably achieved something. He said, if I achieved anything in my life, I achieved it in the merit of the prayers of my mother. By the way, his parents were not religious. His mother was sort of traditional. His father was a, a German professor of languages and philosophy at the University of Berlin in the, in the, in the 1920s and 30s. Completely secular. But he said, if I achieved anything in my life, it was in, in the merit of the prayers of my mother... He said, I would see her talking to God about me sometimes ten times a day. He must have been a troublemaker. Yeah. But uh, she spoke to God all the time, and he saw that. And he, he understood that his greatness came because God helped him. And God helped him because his mother cared enough to actually talk to God about it. That was, there's no room for being religiously shy when it comes to our kids. When I was going on these radio and television shows in America, trying to explain the system to people... Planting, I could explain, is a cognitive process. Building, I could explain, is a behavioral process. I was thinking, how am I going to explain prayer to secular America? So the book was supposed to be released in August 2001. And there was a delay. 
It ended up being stuck in a warehouse and we weren't able to release it until October 2001. So in September 2001, there was this accident in New York and a couple of buildings fell down. When I arrived in October 2001 in New York, when my plane flew into New York, I saw hanging from the bridges in New York these hand-painted signs that said, Pray to God. I got on CBS New York and the woman was interviewing me and I spoke about planting, which people can relate to, and I spoke about building, which people could relate to. When it came time for prayer, she said, I noticed there's a third component of your system. Did you want to talk about that? She was hesitant herself. I said, yeah, let me ask you something. I said, she has children. I said, are there any situations that you hope that your children never, ever experience in their life? She looked at me with very serious eyes. I said, are there any people that you hope that your children never, ever meet ever in their lives? And the woman was nodding. And I said, tell me something. Be honest. Are you on top of your kids 24-7? How much control do you have over whether your kids, God forbid, ever run into those people or experience, God forbid, those situations? And she was nodding her head and I said, if you don't pray to God, you're insane. And she said, yes, you're correct. There's three components in the system. There's planting, there's building, and there's prayer. Okay, now, how these three components interact, the rules by which you apply them, how can you, you can use them to come up with a prescription for any scenario ever, you have to see the book. The book explains exactly how to do it. But I'll just give you an example now. We don't have a lot of time, but I'll give you an example of what you can do with these three components once you understand how the components work. Let's take one. Uh, okay, we'll take we'll take timing like this. Speak for a minute about the planting, the agricultural, the organic half of the of the system, or the third of the system. Anyone who's involved with plants knows that plants have seasons. If you plant too early, the seed's going to rot in the ground. You plant too late, it'll sprout, wither, and die. You've got to hit the season just right. Human beings also have seasons. A gross example of this is by language. We know there are certain years during which you can teach a human being language. If, God forbid, we miss teaching a human being language during those years, they can never learn language. I'm not talking about languages. Once someone knows English, they can learn French. If someone knows French, they can learn Spanish. But you have to teach somebody a language to begin with within a certain period of years or they'll never learn language. There were these horrible experiments that were done, quote-unquote, in nature. Where there was one experiment where a child was locked in a basement for the first 11 years of the child's life. And the, 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 the quote-unquote, parents would take food and push it in the door and lock the door. And the child had no contact with human beings for 11 years. First 11 years of the child's life. So when the, when the child was actually found, the parents were arrested, the child was found, and they, they, they then started to work to try to rehabilitate this child and actually civilize them and bring them into the, the community of mankind, they realized before we can do any work with the child, we have to teach the child language. What they discovered is that there's a window that opens when you can teach a child language, and then that window closes again. They never could teach the child language. There was another child who was lost in a forest when the child was very young. That child also could never learn language, because once the window closes, it closes. There are seasons that come. There are seasons that go. 
sometimes those seasons never come around again. Sometimes they do come around again. There are times in a person's life when they can become on fire, crazy wild, excited about learning Torah. Between age birth and around age 11 or 12, a child can become on fire, excited, wild about learning Torah. From around age 11 or 12 until around age, it used to be 18, but I watched it change, around age 19, the window closes. At that point, you can get a child wild, on fire, excited about participating in Jewish events with people of the opposite sex. But it's difficult to get them on fire, wild about learning Torah. However, around age 19, the window opens up again. And the window is open from around age 19 till around age 25, 26, 27. When the full burden of earning a living hits, at that point, the window tends to close. And that window usually remains closed until around age 55. Between age 26, 27 and age around 55, you can get somebody on wild, I mean, on fire, wild, crazy, excited about giving money to Jewish institutions. But about learning Torah themselves, much more difficult. There's exceptions, but it's much more difficult. Around age 55, the window opens up again and then remains open until the person passes away. So there's these seasons that come and go as well. There's some seasons that come and close, and there's some seasons that come and go, come again. I'll give you a practical example of how we use this with, with raising kids. There's a season for toilet training, for teaching a child how to use a toilet to get them out of the diaper. Until that season comes, there's nothing to talk about. A child has to be a, do a certain amount of neural development before they actually can gain control over the, over the sphincter. Until they actually have done that neural development, they cannot be toilet trained. It's impossible. They, they, they cannot control themselves. Parents, unfortunately, often pride themselves on how early they can toilet train their kids. So I've heard mothers who are, are competing with each other. And one mother will say, I toilet trained my kid at two years old. And the other mother says, that's nothing. I toilet trained my kid at 18 months. Second mother, I toilet trained my kid at six months. Everyone's in disbelief. The other woman says, I toilet trained my kid in utero. Yeah? Okay, now, obviously, it's not good parenting to try to plan for the wrong season. If you try to toilet train a child too early, what happens? So it's a very common scene. The only way to toilet train a child is to take the diaper off. So you tell the child, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And the child says, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. You take the diaper off. Yeah? The child's walking around in the carpeted living room and you say, you can do it, you can do it. The child says, I can do it, I can do it. I did it. Now the child is standing there and the child is wet and the child can smell the odor. And you walk in and when you see the child, you're like, oh no. At that point, how does the child feel? How does the child feel about the whole project of toilet training? Until just now, he was your beloved. And now you're so disappointed with him. And the activity that I wanted him to love, he now hates. If I would wait a little bit longer on the toilet training, then the whole thing would go much more harmoniously. So the key is to be aware of timing. The same is true with reading. The same is true with every skill that I want to build into a child. There's a point where the child's ready. There's a point where the child's not yet ready. The Talmud actually gives ages. The Talmud says at age five, you teach children to decode. At age 10, there's a tremendous jump in reading comprehension. At age 15 is the first time the Talmud says approximately that age where children can comprehend multiple viewpoints. The Talmud gives very specific guidelines for when we teach children each one of these skills. Why? Because you have to be aware of seasons. 
if you have all of the Talmudic sources laid out in front of you, by the way, it was so interesting, all the secular research pointed exactly what, to what the Talmud told us 2,000 years ago. Exactly. If you have these sources laid out in front of you, and you spend enough time with your kid to actually know your kid, and in many countries that's very difficult, in America especially, I found that people work such long hours they have no time to spend with their kids. So they don't really know who their kids are. They can't be aware of the season. But if someone would spend enough time with a child and they would be aware of what the sources say, they could hit the seasons on the nose. That's one beauty of approaching every child as an agricultural product. You should start thinking in terms of seasons. I'll give you another example. We're low on time, so I'll give you one last example and then we'll conclude. When you use the to kindle a soul system, so you become aware of this agricultural principle called customized education. How does it work? Anyone here who's ever raised plants knows that all plants require different sorts of care. If you give the exact same care to an apple tree and a banana bush, so at least one of them is not going to put forth fruit. In fact, you'll probably kill both of them. Even houseplants, even the same species of houseplant, you can have one houseplant that likes the back porch with hard rock. And the other one likes the kitchen with classical music. And if you switch it, they'll die. The exact same thing is going to be true about human beings. I'll give you one very controversial example. It shouldn't be controversial, but a very controversial example of this. There is a terrible disease that first broke out on the east coast of the United States. It affected primarily pediatric populations and spread quickly to the west coast of the U.S., then infected the entire country, became a plague in America, eventually moved from pediatric populations into the adult population. This disease next hit South Africa, and after South Africa, it hit Western Europe, and now it has spread across the world. There are medications for dealing with the disease. The disease is called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or sometimes these kids are just called hyperactive. When I tried to explain this disease to Talmudic sages in Jerusalem, one of them said, hyperactive, he knows English very well. He said, hyperactive, that means too active. Yes? I said, yes. He asked me, who drew the line? It's a fascinating question. And of course, the answer to that question is, it depends which index you use to measure hyperactivity. Because there are about 11 different indices that we use for measuring hyperactivity. And according to one index, a child is perfectly normal. According to another, the child's hyperactive and needs medication. So I began to explain to him, and he said, it's not hyperactive. He says there are children who are more active and there are children who are less active. Immediately removing the moral judgment and removing the arbitrary line. It's obviously a much more scientific term, the way that he phrased it, than the way the scientists phrased it. The old man with the long white beard said... There are children who are more active, there are children who are less active. These children require customized care. It's a very interesting approach. He showed me nine different strategies for dealing with hyperactive children. Talmudic strategies. So immediately, I went on databases around the world looking for any studies that would incorporate these particular nine strategies. What we found was that if you would use all nine of these strategies with a hyperactive child, n- literally 90% of the children who are today on stimulant medication for hyperactivity could be removed from the drug. Okay, now, 
10% of children could not come off the medicine using the Talmudic strategies. That means that you need to have stimulant medications available because 10% of the kids really need the drugs. When I spoke in America, a rumor spread among the press that I was anti-medication for hyperactivity. And repeatedly, when I was interviewed on, on the radio and on television, I said, I'm not anti-medication. I wish that all children who needed medication would get it. I wish that only children who need medication would get it, not the other 90%. I'll give an example of a sort of strategy that the sage recommended, which is, is revolutionary and way ahead of his time. One of my colleagues, a professor at the University of Nebraska, holds the patent on the most widely used device today in the, in the United States for mainstreaming ADHD kids into quote-unquote normal classrooms. Now, I'm going to describe to you what the device looks like. It's two vertical wooden beams. And at the base of these two vertical wooden beams, there is a horizontal plate. At the top of these two vertical wooden beams, there is another plate which is angled at like 45 degrees. Yeah? This thing looks exactly like this. Now, this is called... In the language of modern Western science, this is called a stand-up desk. And my colleague at the University of Nebraska, who holds a patent on this thing, by the way, I was so impressed with this device, I included a picture of it in my book. Yeah? He, call, he says that when children use these stand-up desks, they're ingenious, because he said a hyperactive child often will learn better when they can actually move around. Right? By the way, 25 years ago, we knew about this. It's called kinetic learning. There's some people who cannot learn unless they're actually moving. I'm surprised I don't actually see anybody knitting at this moment. But normally in my class, I have people who are knitting. Often people will take notes. Some people, sometimes people write stories in my classes just to keep their hands moving. Anything, as long as they're moving, they can learn better. This is typical. This is called kinetic learning. These children, sometimes, if they can just move around with the desk, they'll do great. He writes that when, when these children are given math work and they have a stand-up desk, he says, from the chest up, they're vigilantly doing their mathematics. He says, from the chest down, he says, they're dancing like Fred Astaire. Yes? I think it's interesting that in every mainstream yeshiva in the world there are no normal desks. There are only these things which science today calls stand-up desks which I believe in Yiddish were called standers. <laughs> and it's not an accident that in all yeshivas in the world this is what is used. Because many people learn much better when they can move around. By the way, if the child wants to sit he just rocks the stand-up desk back into his lap and he has a desk sitting in his lap, so it's the perfect device. And of course, it's not that all people who learn yeshivas are not well. <laughs> That's not what's going on. It's that normal human beings need to move around. Who ever thought of a desk? I mean, some Greek anti-Semite? You know, like, where did that come from? It's a crazy idea. Once you know that children require customized care, we can start to adapt to the particular needs of the child. Now, Western teachers get very nervous when we start introducing these nine strategies because it's not how they were taught to teach. And they don't know initially how to handle it. But as soon as they're shown how to handle it, they grab onto it right away and they swim like in water. I'll leave you with one last story about customized education and then I'll, then I'll conclude. I had the privilege of visiting a classroom in the United States. It was in Los Angeles. There was a... Uh, a teacher there who 
the story is as follows. He actually wasn't a trained teacher. He was a boy who was learning in Kolel. And a man, he was a married man, he was learning in Kolel, a young fellow. And he had no training in education whatsoever. But he knew a lot of Gemara. He studied Talmud. He had the, the, the Jewish worldview on things. He needed some point to support himself and he decided to get a job. What did he know how to do? Well, he knew Torah, so he decided he'll teach. So this boy applied for jobs at a bunch of schools in the city and he couldn't get a job because he had no background. He walked into a particular day school and he said to the day school, you know, I'd like to get a job teaching. And this particular day school had a group of parents who would refuse to medicate their ADHD children. And eventually all these children had been expelled from, the, from their normal classrooms because they were so active. And they'd taken all the unmedicated ADHD children from a bunch of different grades and they put them all into one room. They called it the padded room, yes? So when this boy walked in and applied for a job, they said, you know, as a matter of fact, we have a class just for you. Yeah? And they brought him in and they took this poor kid with no teaching experience and they said, here, teach these boys. So he walked into this room with unmedicated ADHD boys. Okay? He was in the room for eight hours, then they unlocked it, let him out. He walked out and he says, yeah, that was uh, pretty challenging. Yeah? Now, he had no idea what teaching was supposed to look like. So he walked out of the classroom. He didn't realize that there was anything wrong going on there. He went home and he thought, now, what am I going to do tomorrow to actually keep their attention? Walked in the next day with a basketball. All the kids were flying all over the room. No one paid any attention to him. He went up to the board and he wrote on the board a bunch of math problems. When he finished writing on the board a bunch of math problems, he then took this basketball and he started dribbling the basketball up and down. He's bouncing the basketball up and down, and the kids suddenly started looking at him. He took the basketball, looking at the kids, he took the basketball, and he fired it at one of the kids. The kid caught the basketball, and the teacher said, quick, dribble up to the board and solve that problem. So the kid bounces the basketball up to the board, solves the problem, he says, fire it to another kid. He fires the basketball to another kid, dribble to the board and fire. So I went to visit this classroom. Okay. When I walked in, there were basketballs flying everywhere. So, whoa, man, watch out! Yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa! However, the children in that classroom were getting scores on standardized tests which were as high as the quote-unquote normal children because they were allowed to move around. I'll leave you with one last story. The most powerful means we have for planting and building our children according to this traditional Jewish educational system, is personal example. And that's the backbone, backbone of the whole system. When I was getting ready to publish the book, I traveled around the world, I interviewed educators all over the world, and I asked them, what is the greatest educational challenge you face? The prize goes to a high school principal, Jewish high school principal, who told me what he feels is the greatest educational challenge he faces. He says he has a, a very expensive private high school. And he said, parents send their kids to our school and along with Kant and calculus, they expect us to teach their kids some semblance of ethics. He says then, on the weekend, on Sunday, they take their kids to an amusement park and in order to save five dollars on the admission price they lie about their children's age he says 
That's the greatest educational challenge we face. In order to save five bucks, they blow a $15,000 tuition. I've only given you a brief introduction, a picture of what can be done if we would grab a hold of the traditional Jewish system for raising kids. It's a very simple system. It's an easy system to learn. And once you have the three principles of planting, building, and prayer in your hand, you can literally solve any educational challenge you will ever face. The book, Kindle Soul, ended up rising to be the 48th best-selling book in America. Not among Jewish books, among secular books. The non-Jews in America went wild over it. May it be God's will that the Jewish community as well get excited about the traditional Jewish approach to raising kids. That we grab hold of our heritage, enjoy the gifts that God has to give us. And as a result of that, that every single person in the room should experience tremendous nachas, tremendous pride from all of their children. And in the merit of that, God willing, as the Jewish people becomes who they could be because we're using traditional Jewish parenting, may we see Mashiach Bimhera Vyamena. Thank you.